Assalamu alaikum and hello. Welcome to the Mindful Muslim podcast. Thank you for joining me on this brand new episode with the amazing Zahra and James. It really, truly is an awesome episode, which I really hope that you'll benefit from. We spoke about love, marriage, and personal growth in life. Inshallah, you will benefit from it. Assalamualaikum Zahra and James. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Inspirited Minds Mindful Muslim podcast. It's so lovely to have you both. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Assalamualaikum. Thank you for having us. Yes. Walaikum salam. No, it's it's really amazing to have you. As we mentioned just before the podcast when we were chatting, um, we've not had, um, you know, lovely guests from overseas. So it's really quite exciting. And you guys are amazing anyway. So um, I guess I'll start with asking you guys to introduce yourselves, tell us a little bit about your work and what Practical Muslim actually is. Um, so I'll start, I guess. Uh, I'm James. Uh, I guess in my uh, matrix life, uh, my matrix job is I'm a computer scientist that works in artificial intelligence, but I am uh, most of the time now a success coach for Muslims via Practical Muslim. And uh, what we do is really our goal is to inspire, you know, the next Muslim Steve Jobs, the Muslim Serena Williams or Muslim J.K. Rowling, where they um, embrace their faith as a catalyst towards success. Most of us sort of use Islam as a way to shrink, but we want to use it as a way to expand. Um, and I also teach uh, our relationship course, co-teach the relationship course with Zara, which is called Limitless Love, which is a six-week hands-on coaching program that we do to help people remove the blocks, that the self-imposed blocks towards success, love, and abundance. Yes. Um, and my name is Zahra Al-Jabri, um, and I am a relationship coach. And what practical Muslim means to me is really it's the evolution of kind of our own spiritual journey of really appreciating the practical, applicable um, spiritual elements of Islam that we felt we had not um, received in my uh, in my traditional Sunday school upbringing. I was taught like the rules you know, of should I wear socks when I pray? And does this have gelatin or not? And, you know, how long is a guy's beard supposed to be? And what position is your elbow, you know, in sujood? But then, you know, I I didn't know and I didn't feel the comfort of Islam that um, you would hear about in the stories of the Sahaba or the Hushua in prayer. Like I could not access that. And when I came to appreciate how to understand Islam in that way that I could actually apply it into my life and then I would feel better and I'd feel closer to God. Um, my whole life changed and that's what sparked the birth of Practical Muslim to really make it practical for other Muslims. No, that's fabulous. Um, you've really beautifully just stepped into my next question, which was all about what motivated you to actually start uh, working on um, uh, your relationship coaching as well as practical Muslim. Um, was it a similar story with you, James? For for me, it was 
twofold, I think. One was, you know, we, we've started multiple businesses together, Zahra and I. I guess that's one way that we have fun together. And um, we were uh, living in uh, New York City at the time. And, uh, you know, we were just thinking, brainstorming, what can we give the world? Like, what is there that we can contribute to this world? What is it that we know that many people don't? Um, and, and they are at a disadvantage for not knowing it. And it truly in their heart. You might know it intellectually, but if you haven't processed it in your heart, it's, it's almost useless, right? And we came to this epiphany that it was our love for each other. That's what we had that was just absent. As a man, you know, we would go, I would go to the mosque. I used to be very involved in the, mis in the masjid, etc. <clears throat> and I just felt men didn't love their wives, to be honest. Like the uncles and whatever, like the way they spoke about women, the way they spoke about their wives, the way they interacted with them uh, was void of love. And I know for a fact that can't be good. Uh, just, just for the ummah, for society, for the world um, in general. And that sort of, I think for me, that was the main thing, was that we want to share our love with the world um, to see that if people were in more loving relationships, this world would be so much better. This pandemic would have been so much better. The, the economy would be so much better. I think that was probably the main catalyst for me. Yeah, I mean, that's a good one. <laughs> um, and would you like to add anything to that? I mean, yeah. And I mean, I'll add that, like, it was kind of um, hard for us, too, because, like, we knew that we had a special relationship. But then, like, OK, if we're going to go out and support people to have um, to increase their loves and their relationships, like, is that going to jeopardize our relationship? And it took a lot of grappling with, like, you know, the evil eye and all of these things to really come to the place um, and as we dug into the work and developed our own program, we saw that, um, you know, it wasn't that we were lucky in love or that we, um, you know, had just kind of stumbled our way into a good relationship. It was that, like, we had really built our marriage on these principles and foundations that, um, like, subhanAllah, like, instinctively came to us as what to do. And of course we had our struggles and our challenges and our ups and our downs, but that that process that we went through was what created our great marriage. And that now that I know that it's a process, A, I'm not scared of anything coming in to, um, to jeopardize it because I know what to do. I know the process to like make sure it stays firm and then be like, oh my gosh, it's a process. So I can teach it to others. I can walk people through these steps, through these things so that they can have it too. It doesn't have to be elusive. And I think in so much of like modern Western culture and in Islamic culture, we have kind of this destiny, qadr, lucky, that like makes it seem like things are out of your control. If you just happen to stumble into the right guy who is the good fit for you, you'll have a good relationship, you know, as a woman or whatever. But um, there's, you know, you just try and be as good, good as you can, right? Whatever that means for you. Um, but beyond that, you know, good luck. Hopefully you get a good one. And to really show people that like, Nah, it doesn't have to be just good luck. It can be like, no, no, I'm having a good one and I'm going to create it. I'm going to build it. I'm going to set the foundation. I'm going to build it the way that I want. I mean, the analogy is if you were uh, at the beach, right, and you saw somebody who was really fit, right, a man who, you know, with abs or a, a woman with a toned body, you will never think, oh, they're so lucky. 
Like it's random chance that they are so fit. You know, you know that they eat right, they sleep well, they watch what they put in their body. They're very dedicated to this. It's a priority for them, right? Um, but it's the same thing with a marriage. Why do we think that when people have an amazing relationship or an amazing career, it's luck? Oh, it's it's the qadar, it's Allah. They're they're the chosen ones. No, it's the same thing. Just as you would put time to have a great body, great physique, you do the same thing for a relationship. Absolutely. Um, mashallah, just to pick up on what Zahra mentioned earlier about sort of <clears throat> what we hear in terms of um, it's all luck. I, I feel like it's it's something that really resonates with me because I, I think you hear it all the time that um, it's not really so much in our control or what we do um, that, you know, builds that foundation or in terms of even meeting somebody in the first place and that kind of being in our control as well. Um, it's very much seems to be um in a lot of the Muslim communities, I, I feel that um, it's very much down to luck um, and who you sort of end up meeting. Um, so I did want to dig a little bit deeper into how everything has been going in terms of your relationship coaching and your program. Um, anything that sort of memories or things that stick out with you guys in terms of highlights that you'd like to share with us? I mean, what you're, how you're connecting the two um, the highlight is that in our coaching program, right, we are just working with the individual. We walk them through three pillars, like their relationship with themselves, their relationship with Allah, their relationship with others. In all of the coaching, it's um, con communicating with us, it's watching videos, it's doing these growth work assignments. There is literally, you know, you're not getting on apps, you're not going to matrimonial events, you're not, you know, putting yourself out there, quote unquote, like, you know, doing all these things, you're sitting by yourself, processing, learning, journaling, meditating, praying, making dua, all of these things. And then to see people come out on the other side of our program um, and get married and just to really feel for ourselves, you know, the, you, um, the confidence that we have in our program is because it's based on what Allah promises in the Quran when he says, I will not change a condition of a people until they change what is within themselves. That's what gives us our guarantee. Like all the work you need to do is within yourself. When you do that, Allah will change your outer condition. He will connect you to the person in whatever random way that, it, um, that you're going to be connected. You know, one of our previous students stands out to me that um, she had um, gotten engaged to someone when she was like 23 and then called it off um, and then never met anyone for like the eight years after that. And she felt that, okay, you know, maybe he was the one and I missed my chance. And because I was ungrateful um, to have that opportunity, now I'm being punished and I'm not gonna meet anyone else. He was the one, so there's no one else. And go through our program um, and release all of those blocks, all of those limitations. And six months later is married. And who did she marry? someone in her community she's like i've heard of him but i had never met him in person like people would talk about him and i knew he was a friend of a friend but we just had never had we never ended up at the same event together same whatever but there he was within her circle and the connection doesn't happen truly truly until you are ready until allah wants you to be successful so he doesn't want you to come in and meet that person when you're too unsure or insecure or gonna like sabotage it. He wants you to meet that person when you're gonna build the foundation and make it work. And so that to me is like such a beautiful example. Like he was in her orbit 
And they never connected until she had done the work. Mashallah. James, would you like to add anything? I think for me, from, from a personal standpoint, I think um, fundamentally, right, the, the two things that I really love about our program that I see, one of them is really in the first week of the program. When you see in their eyes, like the, the light bulb just lighting up, we're like, wow, I am the star and the director and the writer and the producer of my own movie. And I can introduce a plot twist anytime I choose. It is in my power. I am the sole responsible for my own happiness. So when I see that clicking, I just love that, especially for Muslims, as, as you highlighted earlier. And what it comes down to is really this. Anything that you desire, anything that you long for, that Allah has put in your heart, right? Um, really, the reason why we don't have it is mostly because we have a fractured relationship with ourselves and with God. It's not so much about others. It's really about our inner relationship and our relationship with our Creator. And my greatest satisfaction is along the first point that you said, when we change people's relationship with Allah. Like it's just, it's, it's, it's just that you keep doing the same things, but now the texture of it is different. The feeling of it is different. That it's uplifting. It's not a chore anymore. It is, it is actually a true communi communion. And what I mean by that is a lot of people would say, I need to be as good as possible so that I can meet somebody, right? Because if I am not good, Allah is going to punish me, right? Allah is going to prevent me from having the one. When that is not true, this is all in our mind. This is a story that we've built and we've uh, sort of uh, amplified in the Muslim community, especially in Islamic schools with children, etc. And it's very hard to get out of. And I think me seeing that people now understand that it's not a tit for tat. You miss Fajr doesn't mean that your car is going to break down. You, um, you know, you spoke maybe out of line to your mom doesn't mean that you're not going to get engaged, right? Like once they understand, when they sit in that peace and that love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that, that's priceless. Um, mashallah, it's so lovely to hear you guys sort of and see you light up when you talk about the work that you do and how sort of um, it fills you guys. It's really amazing to see. Um, uh, I guess what I'd like to sort of um, clear up for our audience as well now is, is there a difference between the program that you guys provide and then Practical Muslim? Are they two separate things? Um, so Practical Muslim is kind of the umbrella, um, I guess, business of, you know, it started as a newsletter that I would write and then it became a blog. You know, took my newsletter, put it on onto a blog, and then uh, I start opened an Instagram account and started posting about it, and then it led to the coaching, um, and then it led to moving from just individual coaching to like okay, like developing this program, and so this program is separate in that it is it's it's a it's like our signature offering of a six week deep dive personal transformation program based on Islamic principles to guide individuals um, to connect with their limitless nature and with the love of Allah, right? That's why it's called limitless love. It's, it's really for anyone to become more of who they are and um, achieve whatever ambitions they have, whether that's in a relationship or with their career or with, you know, their community work or whatever that is. Um, and so Limitless love is its own thing. And then Practical Muslim has a lot of uh, uh, other resources that support people like 
affirmations and we're working on, you know, 150 questions to ask before you get married and different things like that. Amazing, amazing. Um, that leads quite nicely on to um, my next question about which Zahra especially and James, actually, you both touched on your own personal experiences that have led you to practical Muslim um, and, and where you are today. Um, what other kind of life experiences do you think have um, shaped you into the people that you are today? I think for me, what was really profound was um, coming across these spiritual lessons and uh, principles in a secular way. It was only when I heard them from secular sources explained like in a very practical way that um, things clicked for me because I, I heard them for example, the concept of like the law of attraction or manifestation. And they say in that, um, you know, the, the shorthand for the law of attraction is ask, believe, receive. And when they were going through this explanation, I was like, oh my God, that's literally dua. That's how you're supposed to make dua. But they're going through this detail of how do you ask, what does asking mean? How does believe, believe, okay, well, how do you receive? And I was like, I've never heard anyone explain to me dua like this. And like everything just clicked for me, like to understand why my duas haven't manifested, where it is that I'm not actually believing, how my asking is not really specific. It's just kind of vague, like, oh, just please Allah, make things good, you know, general things. And they're like, you need to ask very specifically, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what, like where, who's the Muslim that's teaching us how to make dua like this? Um, and then alhamdulillah, I did go and I found like a few people like they had to go deep into places to discover those people. But I was like, I want to be part of the group that is supporting Muslims to um, apply du'a properly. Because that one like is so critical to our faith. Like du'a is the cornerstone of faith because within it, you're right, you establish that I'm weak and God is greater. And then you establish that only Allah is the one who can do this for me. Like I can't do it. And you're affirming that I believe in this higher power because I'm asking them to do something for me. So like literally our faith is like so closely bound to dua and we're encouraged so much to make dua. But then in our community, the kind of subconscious um, subtext of dua is make dua for what you want, but inshallah you'll get it in Jannah. Like, I don't know if you'll really be, you want, a million dollars you want a huge business you want an amazing career and relation uh, just inshallah you'll get some money and you'll get a, a house and you'll, you'll get married to someone like don't be too greedy basically like we're literally um subconsciously taught like don't believe in your dua don't believe that you could ask god for that or that you would actually could make it happen and that you can have it so when james says like you know, I want to support the next Serena Williams and Steve Jobs and, you know, JK Rowling. It is because that belief that you have that I can build something that will transform the world, that will spread, that will bring hope, that will bring light, that will shine my gift in a massive way. And it doesn't always have to be that it, you know, is uh, a worldwide or, you know, fame, but it can be bigger than us just hiding in our rooms basically going to our nine to five and just like, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, it can be bigger than that. And so for me, that was what was really powerful was to hear from a secular standpoint, people making dua and manifesting their duas and Muslims like, okay, maybe inshallah, hopefully. 
but no, you can't have it. SubhanAllah, Zara, sorry to interrupt you, but it just makes me think that we're actually limiting ourselves, but really importantly, limiting what Allah can do for us as well at the same time. Yes, that's exactly it. Which is just crazy. And I mean, again, that's why our program is called Limitless Love. It's limitless. It's limitless. Allah can do anything. He can split the Red Sea. Like, Allah can do anything. That's right. And, and you know, the, the test, right? And you see what most Muslims, right? Most Muslims, um, especially those like Zahra, who I, I think that the nice thing about our relationship is that we come from very different backgrounds and upbringings, right? Like, even though I uh, grew up in a Muslim country, I um, I didn't follow any, like I formed my own sort of identity around Islam. I didn't become a practicing Muslim until I was in my 20s. That's number one. Um, but then when I did it, I just, I, Allah insulated me from a lot of things that she went through. So for example, my du'as were, part, were very um, aligned with what Zara is saying of naturally. Right, like I just made du'as that were bigger than myself, knew that Allah will answer them, and Allah did answer them, including me marrying her. Um, and so, I, I think that's where we have that balance between our upbringings and our personalities. But the when you talk to people who had a traditional upbringing with a lot of the subconscious programming that you get over the years, if I were to ask you, for example, you're in the UK, if I said, um, which one is more realistic? Right to make du'a for uh, a Honda or a McLaren, right? Like, which one? Which one would you feel more comfortable making a du'a for? A car, a Honda or Toyota or a McLaren or a Porsche? Um, the Honda, because I'd feel like that is realistic, as you say. <laughs> so, yeah, so it is more realistic to expect the Honda, but with Allah, the Honda and the McLaren are the same thing. They are nothing. They are nothing to him, subhanahu wa ta'ala. He created the heavens, the earth, the, the ever-expanding universe that we live in, that we don't even know the bounds of. He created effortlessly, right? And so it's the same thing. Everything is possible with Allah, but you have to get your mind right and you have to get your perception and understanding of Allah right. Amazing. And what we do in our program too is to link that because Muslims do believe, of course, like Allah can do anything. Anything is possible. But then the limit comes in, but not for me. Uh, he's not going to give me the McLaurin. I know you're, my friend is so great and so hardworking and has such a great job. And she'll, of course, you know, you would encourage your friend. Yeah, you could get a McLaurin. You could, you know, you could save up. You could, you could do it. But then for me, oh, no, I couldn't. Like, no, no. Allah's not going to give it to me. Right. And so bridging that gap is the critical piece because that's where the faith comes in. It's not enough to believe, yeah, it's possible for God to do it. Theoretically. You, yeah, that's just theory true faith is you know like that's musa at the red sea like it looks impossible the sea is in front of me an army is behind me and true faith is like no allah will come through for me for us right now i know it looks impossible but i believe and with that belief not just theoretically well allah could help a people if they were in that type of condition um, but you know what? We're pretty much screwed because the sea is in front of us and the army's behind us and it's the most powerful army ever. So <sighs> too bad for us. No, it's the faith that he's going to come through for us, right? Even his, and his people were not that strong in faith, right? And they're like, what are we doing? We're doomed. And Musa is like, no, Allah said, right? I believe we, you know, we will not be left, right? I am following and have true faith and have total conviction. And it is that faith that produces the miracle. We're all asking for the miracle of 
of the McLaren, of the great business, of the wonderful marriage, right? It is a beautiful miracle to manifest in your life. But then we don't take, we don't have the faith that we can, um, that we can receive it. And that is what Musa exhibited in all the prophets, peace be upon them all, is that he's saying, no, he's going to come through for us. And then when we sh demonstrate that deep in our heart, right? Allah is scanning your heart. He's not just looking at what you're saying with your words, that he sees that Musa's like, yeah, he knows that I'm coming through for him. Like, I got to come through. Like, tap your staff. Like, yeah, here you go. You're out. MashaAllah, thank you so much for sharing all of those. Um, it actually uh, has led nicely on to some of my questions about mindset. And we've already touched upon, you've talked about how changing your mindset is such an important thing in life, not even just when it comes to relationships, but actually being able to believe and, and, and manifest uh, everything that you'd like to see in your own life um, and in this world, you know, uh, not just in the next. Um, but I'd also just want to hear a little bit more about if you guys yourselves would like to share any sort of habits that you had before, perhaps um, doing a sort of a exploration into Islam and everything else. Any habits that were particularly hard for you to um, stop or start? I mean, I think you said it earlier, being realistic, right? Being being realistic is the bane of Muslims today. Being realistic, I need to be practical. Um, those, I think that, that was the hardest thing for me, at least, um, in letting go in, in the sense that, um, what happens in the past does not need, my current circumstance does not need to dictate my future. Right. And that's exactly in the example of Musa salam, in the example of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, um, is that my current circumstance has no real impact on the future. The moment of power is the present is right now. In this moment, I have an opportunity to catapult myself into one of the infinitely many beautiful futures that Allah has already written for me, right? But I need to make that choice. In my case, I used to under um, underemphasize my responsibility when I was unsuccessful, right? And I would overemphasize luck for other people that were successful. Um, like, oh, that person had a father who had money or they were lucky or whatever it may be. And in my case, if something happened to me, oh, it's not written, uh, Allah, or I'll always try to blame some other external force as opposed to all the force that, I, that Allah has put within me and within every single creation on this earth. Um, so I think that was the main one for me is being realistic was, um, was probably the hardest thing to let go of. And of course, it, it, it helps, right? A lot of us love the victim story. Especially in the Muslim community, we, you know, we're persecuted, Muslim, uh, you know, Palestine, Burma, etc. We're just in, in, in all constant suffering. And so there, it's a there's a nice uh, narrative to that. I'm not downplaying the suffering of people, but what I'm saying is that many of us hold on to that story, even though we're not part of it, right? Like we are not directly part of the Palestinian struggle day to day, right? But we embrace it because it serves us. It serves to perpetuate that narrative of victimhood that comes from colonization, from first-generation immigrants, etc. Um, and so for us, as second-generation, third-generation, the goal is to not perpetuate that story. And that might have been the story of our parents, and that's okay. And we are all victims of victims, ultimately. So we're not, we're not laying blame on anyone, but it's more about us now writing our own narrative moving forward. Yeah. I mean, that's a really great question that you asked. Um, and I would say for me, it's just the, the negative thoughts. 
um, beating myself up, you know, if I make a mistake, if I don't do something right, um, you know, the pressure again, comes from colonialism, being an immigrant, you know, in my case, I'm also black. So racism, you just feel like I have to be good. I have to be better. I have to not make mistakes. Otherwise, I won't be accepted. Otherwise, you know, something bad will happen to me or, you know, work twice as hard to get half as far. That whole thing just um, creates or creates created for me. The dialogue in my mind is that I'm not good enough. You keep striving, keep doing more, help everyone that you can, put yourself last. You know, I'm also the oldest daughter. Take care of everyone, make sure everyone's needs are met. Don't let anyone feel bad, feel jealous. Like all of these things um, that go on in the mind subconsciously, that has been and continues to be the hardest work of like, of thinking differently about myself. And in turn, right, is the thinking differently about Allah. And that, proves to be for many people the hardest habit to break. Mm. Zahra, um, tell, I'd love to hear a little bit more about um, what you were just mentioning about um, negative thoughts, let's say. What's sort of one example or, 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 or in general that you can think of that kind of something that really helped you overcome those? That's a very powerful question. Our program. <laughs> As you see, you're still working on it. It's, it's, it's an all, you know, continual struggle, right? But um Anything that you can share with us? Yeah, the first is the mindset shift. Is the shift, the initial shift is for you to really sink into the fact that we are not supposed to be perfect. Allah did not make us to be perfect. He already has the angels who do exactly what he says as he says it. And then he created us a big mess, right? A big mess of feelings and emotions and wants and desires. And we, you know, we're so delicate. You squeeze our throat, we can die. We don't drink water, we can die. Like anything could just kill us and anything can make us emotionally feel like heartbroken and devastated. So we're so fragile. We're so weak. We're such a mess. And to just allow yourself to be like Allah is not, you know, um, Allah has never told us that we had to be perfect, right? He's given us tools and resources. Let's take prayer, for example, right? We're commanded to pray five times a day, specific times, in a specific way, blah, 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 blah. But what is this prayer for? Um, for people like me who grew up in Sunday school, hearing it like, you know, you have to pray, you have to pray on time. Otherwise you're going to hell. Allah, you know, told you to pray. This is what you're supposed to do. And it feels, it ends up feeling like a chore, an obligation, a chore to make, right? Another figure appeased and happy. If I don't do this, this authority figure is going to rain down on me punishment now or in the future. So I've got to do this thing. And if we're approaching prayer from this fear-based point of view, and this attitude that like, okay, you know, I prayed Fajr, you know, I woke up, I prayed Fajr, I did it on time for you. So now like, now what do I get? Like, you know, I prayed Fajr for a week on time. I prayed Fajr every day during Ramadan. I fasted. Like it creates this kind of uh, transactional transactional relationship and feeling within ourselves that we are doing it for God, right? I am praying for God. You asked me to do this thing, right? We're doing God a favor. You asked me for this thing and I'm doing it. But that's not at all what prayer is for. Prayer is for us. Prayer is for us that when we are overwhelmed by the world, when our friend lets us down, when the guy breaks our hearts, when the job doesn't come through, for us to go to 
a divine, loving, generous being and cry and beg and, and ask for understanding and soulless and connection to reconnect that I'm still good. I'm still okay to someone to give you that warm hug. Like it's okay. Things will be all right. Like that's what prayer is for. It's for us to really, um, uh, connect back with the truth, which is that everything is going to be fine. This world is transitory. It's going to flee from you. So we don't have to be so attached to all of the things. It's re to remind yourself, God is greater. Allahu Akbar, right? God is greater. And so that piece that you're talking about of, um, you know, how do we tame these negative thoughts? How do we break from that is to come back to this truth that I don't have to be perfect. God loves me no matter what. He already knew all the ways I was going to mess up and forget and make mistakes. And he created me. And to allow yourself to just be human, the grace that we extend to other people, how we forgive them, give, let them slide, blah, 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 that we can extend that to ourselves. And that first shift that you don't have to judge yourself so harshly is what's going to tame the voice a little bit. And then you keep going. Mashallah, I'm, I'm sure your advice, I mean, is super helpful to me right now. I'm sure it's going to be amazing for our audience as well, inshallah. Um, my next question is a little bit more about, I suppose, Islamic lifestyle for you guys. Um, the, I've heard and, and I myself may have thought as well about how can I sort of have a good, in quote, you know, Islamic lifestyle, but also be, in quote, successful. Um, can you sort of break that down for us a little bit? Well, that's James's forte right there. I mean, that's a very common uh, subconscious block for Muslims. Because the way we frame it is that way. That's an either or. I can either be a good Muslim or a good professional, right? Like somehow somehow it's a zero-sum game. But obviously we know that that is not true. First and foremost, some of the most prosperous people in history happen to be prophets, right? Sulaiman, alayhi salam, Dawood, alayhi salam. And others, right? And and Sahaba as well, companions of the Prophet ﷺ, massively successful, right? And they were Sahaba, some of which were promised Jannah, right? And and so that that's the first thing to debunk is that somehow you being successful, there's this fear that I'm gonna have to do uh, un-Islamic things to achieve success. Uh, I'm gonna become vain and sort of worship this success. Um, et cetera, et cetera, right? But here is my proposition to everyone who's listening, is that it is actually far more difficult to live a mediocre life with Allah on your side. You are working so much harder by taming your potential and being mediocre than it is to be successful. Because think about it this way, right? Um, most of us have a nine, have a nine to five job, right? Then to be most Muslims are overeducated and underappreciated at work, right? So we were just in the UK and I met so many Muslims who were like junior something, junior data scientists, apprentice journalists. I'm like, what are these like terrible titles? <laughs> what do you mean? All of us, all of us are apprentices. All of us are learning on the job. You could be VP, CEO, president of a company. You're still learning on the job. Why is a Muslim an apprentice? What is this medieval times? Like what's going on? <laughs> right? Like it was just insane to me. So many talented, 
well-articulated, thoughtful Muslims that I met are like with these like titles below the entry level. Like it, it makes no <laughs> sense. And they have full, they went to Oxbridge, they volunteer, they do all these things. It's, it was insane to me. But we have these nine to fives, right? And I have a phrase that I don't know if Zara likes it. I can't tell if Zara likes my phrase or not, but really these jobs keep us a paycheck away from poverty. I That's like what that they one. do. I like it. That's all they do. They keep you a paycheck away from poverty. They give you a paycheck. You spend it right away. And now you're working hard for one, for two weeks or one month if you're in Europe, waiting on the next paycheck within the first day of the, of the month because that's what they do. They just give you enough to survive and enough to appease any sort of uprising. And they just, and you keep right, running the, the rat race, right? But think about this now. We don't do anything to fall out of line from this job. We get our self-worth from this job. If I have a job, I feel good about myself. If I don't have a job, I feel bad about myself. If I have a high title, I feel better about myself than a lower title, et cetera, et cetera, right? So all our hopes, our dreams, our aspirations, our self-worth are tied to this job. But guess what? Who in this universe should we attach those feelings to? To Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is exactly the definition of shirk. What is shirk? Shirk is not to prostrate to an idol necessarily. It's not the prostration that makes it shirk. It's you putting the hopes and dreams in this idol. And that's what I, that was my epiphany that led me to, to practical Muslim. Is that I worshipped my job without ever bowing to an idol. I was like, I am committing shirk by putting my hopes, my fears, my dreams, these are things that are entitled only to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? And so, by you playing small and staying in this 9 to 5 job, in, in sort of this narrative that we've built around ourselves in the Muslim community, I'm a teacher, I'm a professor, I'm a journalist, um, basically, you're expending so much energy. If you, if you release the pressure from playing this role that society expects you to be, and just was who you're supposed to be, which is Allah's representative on earth, a khalifa of Allah on earth. If you played your proper role, you have so much no energy. You have so much, so much to expand upon now. But instead you are going into this, you, you are an infinite circle going into this little tiny square peg, basically, square space. And I want to even add to what James said, you're putting your hopes and dreams on a job, but also... If the job tells you you can't have Friday off for Jummah, you don't you're do not going to go to Jummah. If your job tells you, you know, that you, you know, whatever they tell you, you need to, you, you have a workout routine or you're supposed to meet with your parents or whatever. You need to come in on Sunday. You're going to come in on Sunday. So like you obey, you also obey the job. And it's again, because this, all of this pressure of feeling like, well, that is the thing that's giving me my worth and giving me my sustenance and giving me all of these things. So I've got to listen and, you know, we will meet people. And it's, I mean, it's just the culture worldwide of like, well, my boss said I couldn't go or I'm working. I can't do it. Like, it doesn't matter that, you know, Allah's command is something different. Like and I, I can't go to Jummah. And I have to be practical sister. I have to be realistic. Realistic. If I, if I say no to my boss, I'm going to not get money. I can't just walk out on this money. I have to be practical. I have to tie my camel. You see how, what we've done, we've weaponized Islam against us, against our own success. You see people dropping hadith, dropping ayahs out of context to justify their mediocrity instead of to fuel their rise. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. 
I wanted to ask you a little bit more about success and sort of um, how we can expand a little bit more on uh, blockages there, I suppose, in terms of, you know, um, uh, people in general and Muslims in particular, perhaps, think that matchmaking and um, uh, mainstream careers like being a lawyer or a doctor is what success is. But, you know, um, it'd be great if you could expand on that and um, what success can be to different people and different individuals and that you can do a million things, essentially. I mean, I think success, number one, that is true. Like success has nothing to do with your job or how much money you have in your account or if you're married or single. And this is the key. If, if you take anything from this call, is this is that if you are telling yourself or others that success for you is in some distant future, you're doing success wrong. If success is contingent on some future achievement, attainment of a physical thing, getting married, winning an Oscar, getting a promotion, getting a degree, getting a data science certification, you're doing success wrong. Success is in the here and now. That's what success is. Being aware of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this present moment and embracing it and feeling it completely is success. Everything else is just part of the game. It has nothing to do with success. That's what true success is. We've been doing success wrong for millennia, but more, more specifically now in this time and age of, of materialism. And once but you I embrace, think... uh, excuse me, Zara, if once you embrace that definition of success, all this material success has no choice but to fall back, fall in line. Just like what I mentioned, once you mend the fractured relationship you have with yourself, once you create the true healthy relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the world has no choice but to fall into place. That's what the Prophet means when he says, turn away from this world and this world will come running after you. It doesn't mean go hide in a cave. It means detach from these silly attachments that we've built. Success is in the here and now, not in the future, not in the past. I was more successful when I was married. Now I'm divorced, so therefore I am less successful. Right? That is not... Success is in the here and the now in every single moment. And most of us usually project into the future. I will become successful once I get X, whatever X is for that person. I was just going to say that that's a little bit advanced. <laughs> so I was going to say something that's a little bit more uh, practical. practical. <laughs> <laughs> you make fun of me when I use that word. <laughs> um, that, uh, you know, if you're just like trying to like, you know, better your life, you're like, I just want a different job or like, I'm tired of this or I'm annoyed by my coworkers, my boss, whatever. The first place, right, is to just sit with yourself and define success for yourself. Because again, we're all spoon fed that success is a big house, a lots of money, everyone knowing your name, you know, getting the best seat at a restaurant, um, whatever, right? Having a lot of followers on social media that we're spoon fed that this is what success is. And so we can we can end up just falling in line with that. Okay, I'm trying to get to those things because that's what success is. So I got to keep going until I have enough money, until I get the bigger house, until I get the McLaurin car. And, and if you never stop to check in, you might come, and if you do stop to check in, you might come to realize like, you know what, for me, success would be like just a small place on the beach. Like 
where I only worked, you know, two days a week. And then the rest of the time I got to surf or whatever it is that you like to do. If you just sit and define success for yourself, you will most likely find that all the things that they're marching us all towards is most of them you don't want. And so that, first of all, will alleviate the stress of trying to achieve success because you're like, oh, I don't want those things anyways. I don't want 100,000 people knowing my name and like trying to take pictures of me. I don't want that. I just want, you know, um, success feels for me that every Sunday I can spend the whole day reading. And that would just feel so luxurious and relaxing and beautiful. And if I created a life where I could have that on every Sunday, that, I, that would must mean that I'm successful, that I can do that and define it for yourself. So that's one. And then number two. I think two, another, another way to, to translate that, if you had to have a single word, what success means is fitra. Mm -hmm. Can you return to your natural inclination, right? So many people that go through the program, right? And what we get them to see is that you were berating yourself and you were killing yourself going after something you didn't want in the first place, right? And you had signs for that, but we ignored it. Like, everybody's running after it, it must be good, right? That's the, that's the herd mentality, right? If everybody wants this house, I must be missing something. I just need to get it, and then I'll figure out what to do with it later. But I'm going to lose my soul in the way, on the way there, right? And so really what success is, is coming back to your fitrah, coming back to the natural inclination. In other words, would be freedom, right? Just to be free, to live the way you want, how you want, at the pace that you want, but from the true wants, the true wants from your fitrah, from your soul, not from what society or, or culture imposes on you. Sorry, I interrupted you there. But. No, that's good. A good add on. Um, so then I was going to say the second part to like helping people tap into their success is also to really appreciate that each of us was given a unique gift and talent by Allah that we were all sent down with something to contribute to this world. And it could just be, you know, the, the kindness that we give to our family. It could be a company that we build. It could be something that we write, but we have something that we, um, that is within us that we need to release out, right? Allah breathed into us of his spirit. And some part of that spirit of Allah wants to emerge out from you. Allah is wants it to be released to make it manifest in this in this world. He is, if we look at nature, right? Why do we marvel at nature? It's so beautiful. It's so and it's so like jagged and weird and you know broken pieces. Like no leaf is like ever perfect. It always has like a little tear, a little rip. But we just marvel at how magnificent it is, and it's an expression of Allah. And likewise, each of us is an expression of Allah. So to have success is to find what that gift is that within you and let it out because that's what fulfillment is. That's when you will feel fulfilled because your spirit will know, okay, that's what we came here to let out and you found it and you let it out. So now like, I feel good. I feel fulfilled. I feel like happy. I can just like, you know, skip down the park because all I've been wanting was to try and release this. But if, you know, let's say you're it's a baking, you love to bake and you just want to bake and come up with different recipes and do these different things. But you're like, no, no, I'm an accountant. I have to do my accounting work. That's what's going to pay the bills. And I'm not supposed to whatever. And I only bake, you know, on holidays. You're just stifling it. And you're wondering why am I stressed and annoyed and frustrated? And, oh, it feels so good when I get to bake, but I never have time to, and I never make time to. You're stifling what Allah blessed you with. And when you allow yourself 
to bake more and more. Maybe it becomes a business. Maybe it just becomes a side hobby. Maybe it's just something now you bake every weekend with, you know, your cousins, your family or whatever it is. But when you just allow yourself to express it, you will feel more successful because you will be fulfilling your divine purpose. You will be fulfilling the gift that Allah has put within you. And that in addition to like understanding what success is for you, right? It ties together is, um, true success and will bring you contentment and fulfillment. I, I wanted to point to two things here, just in, you know, we'll, we'll take it a little bit more advanced. Those for just those that are more advanced than the audience. Be advanced. The first one is, um, is that the, uh, the bane of our, the, the, the pinnacle of our unhappiness in modern society, especially for Muslims, is that we analyze our gifts via a single lens, which is, can I make money from this? And that parents started with children, right? Mom, I want to be a public speaker. Dad, I want to be a poet, you know, etc. What do they tell you? There's no jobs for that. There's no pay for that, right? So it starts already as a child, you get basically taught to analyze any opportunity based on a single dimension, which is, can I monetize that? And that is a horrible way to live because it just, the more you think about monetizing things, the less money you make. That's just a fact. And so, so that's number one. I just want to go back to, as you think about your gift, do not dismiss it because you, your thinking mind can't see how you can make money. If you are fulfilling your gift, Money will come because money comes from Allah. Even your job is not providing for you. It is Allah providing for you through the job. And He may through, provide for you through unemployment checks. He may provide for you through free housing. There are infinite ways that Allah may provide. But now we have turned our jobs again into our deity where like it is providing for us. When it is not it, it is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And He too can provide for you through your gift if you allow it. Don't dismiss your gift just because in this present moment, I can't see a path to monetization. So that's one. Two, I just wanted to go back to that idea of contentment and tie it. And, and, and again, this is how practical we make it in our program. We hear so many hadith, so many ayahs that will repeat mindlessly in our lives, but it has not influenced our actions and our behavior and our true beliefs, right? So... Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu, in one of the very few hadiths that he narrates, right, which is some of the first hadith in any major hadith book, uh, is uh, all actions are but intentions, right? All actions are but intentions. But then people stop here, but then there's a second part, and every man will get what he intends. That's, the, that's really the major key there, if you were to pay attention to that hadith. But I want to go back to this idea of contentment. What Muslims do today, we have false humility and false contentment in the sense that we play small. We say, Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah, look, I'm not going to complain. Uh, therefore, I am, so maybe based on that, I am successful. Zahra. Look, I am content. But you are not content. You are playing small. That's different. That is different than you playing all out, not saving anything. Think of it as a football match. And when you're playing, and if this match was the World Cup Final or the Euro final, I know the, the England made it to a final recently, I believe, or a semi-final, right? You would expect the player to play all out, not saving energy for a hypothetical next game. You play all out every day. Us Muslims, we never play all out all the time. Knowing that us, us Muslims, we're constantly reminded of death. Of any community, we should be the ones playing all out, knowing that we might die tomorrow. 
And so there is a difference between playing small and fake humility and being true content. And that's where all actions are but intentions comes into play. If indeed, so that's how you know, are you sincere or not? Does my life look like the knowledge that I hold inside of me? Does my life look like this hadith that I just mentioned? What is coming out on the other side of this sense of contentment? Is it true bliss? Is it true connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Is it true worry-free life where I'm not worrying about my sustenance, I am free as a bird, free as the air? Or am I playing it small and I'm just contracting like, oh, alhamdulillah, you know, I have enough, I am eating, I have food on the table, I can drink. But that was not the level that you could have played at. Right? And therefore, what does the world around you look like? It reflects that because you will get what you intended. And you intended to play small and then the world around you is going to be reflected as such, as you playing small. And mediocrity and very lots of frustrating things in your life are a result of the intention that you've put in into your lifestyle. Again, that might have been advanced, but... Thank you so much. No, it's fantastic. And the fact um, that Zara, when uh, you you broke down the examples there, um, it was so helpful because I was thinking, oh, I need to ask about an example. So um, you've already uh, gone into that and covered that. Um, I guess the next thing I wanted to ask about was your work in your lives. Uh, have you come across other blocks um, that you've been sort of... Uh, uh, you've seen regularly um, in your work. Um, we haven't um, maybe spoken about uh, blocks that come to your mind um, yet. For success, the one that I'll say is actually fear of success. We, just to piggyback onto that idea of how do I have an Islamic lifestyle and, and a successful materialistic life, if you will, um, is constantly in the background. The narrative is... Um, let's use uh, let's use your podcast as an example, right? Um, I'm afraid I have a podcast, and right now I might have 1,000 listeners, right? Um, but I'm afraid, but my desire is for it to attain 1 million listeners, right? But I'm afraid that I will attain that level of listeners because, well, that means that I have to get better equipment. Maybe I need to do customer service. Maybe I need to hire somebody to reply to all the complaints. Oh, maybe people are going to start trolling me now because I'm going to be visible and people are going to leave negative comments. So all of these fears of success are holding you, from, holding you back from success. And I had to do that for myself first and foremost. And anything that we coach, we do for ourselves first and foremost. Um, and so I had to catch myself on a lot of the fears that, of success that I had in the back and usually around like effort and things like that. That's my own bias. But then you notice it across all, all our students and clients who uh, say with their tongue that they desire something, but subconsciously they're blocking themselves from it because of fear of what if it became true? What are the responsibilities and the burdens that will uh, come with that success? Yeah. I mean, that's a huge block. Um, but the ultimate block that blocks everyone is basically the feeling of not being enough, that I'm not good enough, that I'm not worthy, I'm not deserving. Um, and that block then seeps into these other blocks that leads to, I'm not, I have a fear of success or a fear of failure or a fear of, um, you know, getting into a marriage and getting a divorce. Um, and it all stems from feeling not worthy. And so that 
block and every self-help book, every personal development course, every program around those lines is to support people to feeling worthy and feeling deserving. And what's unique about our program um, and why it's been so supportive of Muslims is because if you don't appreciate all the ways that you have internalized that feeling of unworthiness, then you will forever stay blocked. So for example, a woman can go through um, trying to deal with this uh, work and um, she may be addressing how she doesn't feel uh, worthy at work or with her family or with her siblings, you know, the other sibling got more love or this and that. But if she doesn't address it in how it relates with her relationship with Allah and how she internalizes her spirituality, she will still remain blocked. And so we have many Muslims that come to our program. They're like, you know, I already did like Tony Robbins, or I already am reading, you know, all of these books, or I'm already went on this retreat. Um, and I, I, that's what I've been working. When we tell them what, how we'll support them, like, but I've been working on that. I'm like, but yeah, but have you addressed it truly from the angle of like Allah and Islam? Because for the Muslim community, the feeling of unworthiness towards Allah, um, like seeps in in so many different ways, right? We just don't feel good enough. I'm not Muslim enough. I'm not good enough Muslim. I'm not, you know, religious enough. Or I am religious, but, uh, you know, then I'm maybe like I've, I've been neglecting the world too much. So I don't have the right balance, like all of these things. And if you don't appreciate that aspect of it, no matter what secular worthiness work you do, you will remain blocked. And that's why so many people have had success, because for the Muslim community, this relationship with Allah, this um, view of ourselves vis-a-vis -vis Allah, is really critical to to getting through to really sinking into okay i'm worthy i'm worthy of my dreams and i'm worthy of allah's mercy and support yeah i think it's important to highlight that that our program is a coaching program right it is not just uh, videos that you just regurgitate knowledge right as i mentioned before does your life look like now as you hold inside of you muslims know we know so much, like we know all the hadith, all the ayahs, all the poems, all the sayings, all the expressions, everything, right? But our lives does not reflect that knowledge at all because we mostly don't apply it or don't, we haven't internalized it. And so the purpose of the coaching program, as you mentioned, like what some of the steps that we've shared here on the call are enough for you to do a lot of introspection, right? Do I have these blocks? Do you see these blocks? The main thing, the difference that we provide is the support the um, accountability and the continuous work on this because you might identify it today but then it falls through the cracks just like any coach right and it's the same thing with uh if you were to, to do a sport you don't go one time hire a coach you kick the ball once and like okay now i'm david beckham right no like you have to keep going and working with the same coach for years sometimes right and so and that's what we provide it's not only helping you shine the light at your blind spots and working through them and giving you the courage to work through them and inspire some more. But we give you the accountability and continuity. That's the key. The focus, accountability and continuity. That's what's key because you could go on YouTube and watch all of the stuff. Like we don't have a monopoly on the truth. Nobody does. Like Muslims feel that, oh, only Islam has the monopoly. No, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the truth and he spread it in all sorts of ways and all sorts of sources have it. And so we don't have a monopoly on truth. 
But what we provide is that we could combine our understanding of this truth with the accountability, the continuity, and the focus that for me, my fear is a fear of success. Let's work, let's focus on that and let's get rid of this once and for all. Why do we keep repeating the same the same scenarios over and over and over in our lives? And also like getting to know a person, you know, that's the, the issue when people go to a sheikh, right? They go to a sheikh with their problem and the sheikh in general gives generic advice. Pray, fast, save up to go to Umrah or Hajj, you know, um, just giving you generic advice. And of course that those rituals and those performances can support you and can be helpful to you. But it, if you are, if, you are trying to, again, like we mentioned before, if you're trying to pray when you are feeling unworthy, then it becomes transactional and you're not getting the benefit from that prayer. But the Sheikh never went into with you, like, why are you feeling blocked from your prayer? Why do you feel like God is not supporting you? Why do you feel, you know, that your marriage is so difficult or that, you know, whatever, every uh, career that you try to get into, you get fired or you are constantly, you know, getting bullied or whatever the thing is. If you're getting generic advice, it's not going to land because you need to appreciate how it's manifesting for yourself specifically, right? How is this uh, affecting me specifically? And that's how coaching comes into play is that now we can tailor it to you. Like, okay, when you pray, focus in this way, or, you know, actually you, what's, what may be helpful to you is a journaling practice and doing a journaling practice and then report back how you feel. Okay, you felt good, it did work or it didn't work. Okay, let's try something else to figure out what is the thing that's going to move you because we're not generic. We are all specific, unique individuals and how things are coming out into our lives and how they are playing need to be dealt with specifically. So when we just apply this, okay, every day I've been reading Quran for, you know, um, this, the last two weeks on this issue. And I, I just don't feel any better. Well, who told you to read the Quran? What surah are you reading? Why are you reading it? Are you paying attention when you read? Do you understand what you're reading? Are you reading the translation also? Or are you just reading it in Arabic? Like there's so many things to go into there. Like just assuming that I read Quran and I prayed and I made dua for Allah to help me and for this to be over, like, well, what to be over? What do you want to end? Why do you want it to end? Like, if you don't get specific, if you don't understand, if you don't understand yourself, what's going on, and then you don't, you don't specifically know what the problem is, and then apply a specific solution, you will forever be blocked. If you're just dealing with a generic, I just don't feel good. It's just, why doesn't things work out for me? I just want to be more happy. And then the generic prayer and fasting, you're going to just have blah generic stuff you need to get specific and that's what we do in our program is like support people to get specific generic device gives you generic results that's just the way it is and for muslims listening if you are stuck if you are struggling i think the main thing to overcome is this objection i know and i did i already know this i already know this hadith i already know this ayah i already did this i already did Omar. i already did uh, I already did read Quran. Yes. But what was your internal state when you did so? That's the key. Like, both her and I could read the same ayah, right? But the results would be vastly different because of our internal state. The problem with Islam, with Muslims today, we focus so much on the outward, so much on the appearance that we forget about the in, inner state. 
And that's where we go. We go deep into the inner state, not some surface level tactic to get you that long lasting, massive sort of upside transformation. That leads quite nicely to my next question about how we can try to, uh, I suppose, encourage, which we've touched on a little bit, but also maintain the the mindset changes when we grapple with those. And um, once we've done all of that self-reflection and it's a lot of work, but I'm sure it's very, very worth it. Um, once that's done, what are the, some of the ways that you, in your own lives, uh, or indeed in your course, have implemented to be able to maintain those mindset changes as much as possible? I mean, I, I think I, I think there are two two things there. One of them is actually a fear, right? That one fear is, what if I go through this program, I see results, then I then I'm gonna go back to my old self. That's a very common fear. And it's actually a fallacy because we've had so many people do the program, right? And you might go back in one way or another, but overall, you'll never be the same person again. Why? Because you just can't do it. You just can't do it anymore. It's it, like a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. You just cannot go back to being a caterpillar. It might go and crawl on the ground, but the butterfly is still, it's a butterfly. So that's number one. Like that fear is just a common fear. And, and again, um, Muslims, first generation immigrants always feel like, oh, somebody's trying to scam me, so maybe I'll do this and then I won't see the results. And it's really just all made up in our head. You will never want to go back to your old self once you've seen signs of your magnificent true self on the other side. So that's one. Two is the bad news. So that's the good news. <laughs> the bad news is the work never ends. The work never ends. And, and the story, I guess I didn't share what brought me to this work directly, but um, I was a very... A successful rising star in my profession. Won every award there was to one, had the highest salaries you could ever expect in New York City, loved and adored by everybody. Um, but it was just terrible. It was just terrible. Like I was just not living my full potential in who I was meant to be. And uh, one day we were in Kenya on a, on a safari with Zahra and our kids. And it just came out to me. I was like, Zahra, when we go back to New York, I'm not going back to work. Like, and this is how I knew that it was meant to be because Zahra didn't flinch. Just like how Hajar didn't flinch when Ibrahim السلام, told her he is leaving her and, uh, and uh, Ismail at the Kaaba, right? Or in, in, in the valley of Mecca. And when she said, did Allah tell you that so to do that? And he said, yes, or he, he insinuated yes. She said, well, God will not forsake us. And that's what Zahra did. Zahra gave me courage by saying, let's go, let's do it. I agree. And we had three kids, expensive rent in New York City, no plan B, and that was it. But we knew that Allah was going to be sufficient for us. And so we did that. We did, and, and so I was without a job for months on end, no money, like we're just eating rice and beans, like nothing, nothing for us to survive on, barely making rent. And then later, and... Prior to getting married, you know, I had done Hajj. And since we've gotten married for like about, maybe we've been married for like eight years or so, every year we try to go to Hajj. At that point. At uh -huh. that point, you know, every year we try to go. We, we never could go to Hajj. And we were making a lot of money. We had a successful business, etc. And this is how Allah works. The year that I had no income, we had no income, that's the year we went and did Hajj together. And it was very expensive. But you know, when I did Hajj, it was very cheap back then. This was extremely expensive and costly. And expenses is a relative term, I suppose. But um, Allah provided. 
right? And so when I came back from Hajj, sorry, this was a long-winded answer just to say this. When I came back to Hajj, I felt victorious. Like, look, I succeeded. I gave up my false idol, this false god of a job, removed my self-worth from my profession, went to the lowest of the low, emerged, went to Hajj, got to touch the Kaaba, got to do, got to walk to Arafah, got to stand in Arafah with my wife. It was amazing. I won. Where is the parade? Where is the reward? Where is the villa? Where is whatever? And there was nothing. There was nothing. <laughs> I was like, why is it not getting any difficult? Hello? Any better. I did. I, uh, any, any easier. Easy. Why is it not getting any easier? Why aren't people coming and serving me? Why is there like, I don't know. I don't know what I expected it to be. Right? And I was like, wow. The wor the, then the epiphany came to us. The work never ends. So that was just a long, but that was just to demonstrate the story about how the only constant in life is the struggle. But there are two types of struggle. Struggle that leads to fulfillment and struggle that leads to regret. Because you resisting, again, you playing small is very difficult because it's against your nature. And you're going against your nature, just like a tree would want to shrink and not grow and towards the sun. It is against its nature to try to stay small. It wants to go. And it's the same thing for us. And, and therefore... Uh, just the realization, for me, the most profound thing was just the realization that I'm not better than, than somebody else because I spent more time on my spirituality. And it doesn't mean that I'm done. Like, it's not like 10,000 hours. I just need to do 10,000 hours. Whenever I accomplish them, I'm done. Again, that's not like the certification mindset or whatever, right? I just have to keep going until infinity, until my soul returns to my creator. And another way to think about it is just that Allah is just constantly trying to purify you and take you up to higher and higher levels. So whenever you're done with this level, you'll move to the next and you'll have the next challenge, just like a video game, right? Then you'll have the next challenge and the next boss and you just keep advancing. And so uh, there are parts that will become easier. There will be parts that will, um, um, you know, not sting as much, but the... Uh, as you advance, like it's not, there will continue to be struggle and challenges and hardship and setbacks, right? I mean, again, we have the examples of the prophets, um, peace be upon him, in all of their stories, right? That's never like, okay, and then they delivered that one sermon and then everyone followed them and they lived happily ever after, right? Including There's... including Musa, when he split the Red Sea, the greatest challenge of all time. Once he made it to the other side, challenges reemerged again. <laughs> It's the next level. So you just have to keep, that's one thing that can comfort you is to know that um, I'm getting more and more purified and Allah is always with me. And so it will shift another mindset shift of see, instead of being like, oh my God, why is this happening again? Oh my God. Like, how come I got another flat tire? Oh my God. I have another boss. That's a jerk. Like I, I did it. I left like what it's to realize, okay, this is a, another challenge. This is bringing up, is it bringing up the same thing? Is it bringing something up slightly different? What is this here to teach me? And if you then can shift your attitude to like, okay, what is this here to teach me? What's the hidden blessing, right? In our program, we, we provide people with um, empowering questions. And these are some of those questions because instead of being like, why me? Why is this happening again? Oh my gosh, that type of an attitude, an empowering question helps you to maintain the mindset shift and supports you to see that this is all for me. This is all for me to get better, to get closer to God, to realize my truth, to realize my potential. And if you look through the stories of any um, person, 
you know, whether they are religious or secular, you will see that within their story of how they have to like face challenges and rise, you know, JK Rowling. Okay. She had the challenge of being poor, then writing it. And what challenges is she going through now of, you know, of the success of the, you know, the Twitter backlash and this and that, like, she's going to face different things just because the fallacy of the modern world is like, if you have enough money and enough, um, you know, clout or something, you will be insulated from challenges and trouble. There's no insulation, not for anyone. And there's a saying that says, you know, nobody ever broke our heart, only our expectations. So if we're coming in with the expectation that everything is going to be easy, we're going to be very disappointed. Um, and, you know, we've come to frame challenges as a negative, which is absurd because would you watch a movie that was just all smooth sailing? read a book that had no plot twist, no drama, like nobody would. And it's the same thing with life. A challenge just makes things interesting for you. What is, where is this challenge going to lead me? What new level is this going to take me once I clear this level, right? And for, for those in listening in, just to come back full circle, I just got fired from my job like two weeks ago. Maybe longer, I can't remember. Two weeks ago, so I got- Three weeks. Three weeks uh -huh. ago, I got fired from my job, right? Um, just to bring it full circle, it was very difficult when I quit my job back in New York, uh, many years ago. Um, and now this was like my first kind of job since then, really, so, you know, five, six years later and I got fired. Uh, but that was not the challenge anymore. Why? Because when I got fired, like it was very easy, like all the difficulties that I faced, all the, uh, all the self-worth issues, all the struggles that I had were cleared. I worked on them. Even though at first I tried to ignore them, but that was the blessing of our marriage where I was trying to like avoid doing the work and Zada set me down. I was like, listen, it's easy for you to do certain things, start a new company, et cetera, to distract you from this pain. What's harder for you is to sit and process that pain. And that was the greatest advice that she gave me was just that. It was that, no, I yes, I'm going to stop doing this nonsense, running around, trying to find a new job, trying to network and just sit with this disappointment. And therefore, when this challenge came again, like it was not a challenge. I was happy, like they were letting me go on Zoom. I took a screenshot of me laughing, smiling, cracking jokes. They're de they were depressed and I was happy, right? But there is a challenge around the corner. I don't know what it's going to be. Maybe I'm going to be depressed being at home during lockdown and I have no job. I don't know what it's going to be. But whatever it is, Allah is revealing to me what I need to purify to get to the next level, inshallah. Inshallah. Thank you both so much. My next question is about self-love and how you would say that kind of ties into all of the mindset changes that we've been speaking about. Oh, man. <laughs> the only thing that I'll say about self-love is just another fallacy in the Muslim community that some people confuse self-love with being selfish. And they are not the same. That's the only thing that I'll say. Actually, self-love is a service, is a community service. Just like you go into the masjid and, and serving the samosas during Ramadan, iftars, or whatever it may be, loving yourself the way Allah intended you to is not only a service, of course, to yourself and to Allah, but to the community as well. Yeah. And self-love... I mean, especially nowadays, right? Like it's a buzzword, it's, you know, touted all around. So you have to go beyond, you know, um, a massage and, you know, taking the day off and those things. And to really understand that self-love is that self-honoring, is that honoring of the self that, 
you know, that I will tap into what is my gift and have courage to share it with the world, that I will um, advocate for myself and, you know, say no to, you know, the boss making an extra request or set a boundary with um, a family member who is, you know, getting too much into my space, um, that you're able to appreciate Again, everything goes back to worthiness, right? You're able to appreciate your own worthiness that you deserve your own love and care and attention and energy towards yourself in whatever way that means. If that means that I need to make time for myself to go and exercise, that's a form of self-love. If um, it means that, you know, I've got to create discipline within myself uh, and have this morning routine, that's a form of self-love because I know that I love myself enough, right? I love myself enough to, to provide myself with the tools, the structure, the, the hydration, you know, the, the exercise, the everything that I need for me to feel good and to enjoy my life. Because in the Muslim community, we have kind of, um, glamorized self-sacrifice that it's so good for you to be so giving you volunteer everywhere you're giving to the masjid you do everything you know mothers doing everything for their children um you know you have no time for yourself no life of your own like that is the height of being you know truly uh you know religious or spiritual is that you are willing to sacrifice everything about yourself your time your energy your money your wealth but that's not what Allah asks for us. And even, you know, we have hadith that Allah, um, or that uh, our bodies have a right over us, right? That um, our families have a right. Every, every portion has a right. So when it comes to self-love, it's rebalancing this equation to give the portion that is due to yourself. And this is really hard for many people um, particularly women, um, in general, Muslims, you know, being, if you're an immigrant or if you're, you know, of a non-dominant race, you will feel like, again, you're not worthy of that. That's for other people. That's for, you know, more established people, rich people, whatever, more religious people. But I am not worthy of my own love and attention because of my shortcomings, my faults, or just because, um, other people, have it worse and need more from me. And the one question that can really support you to like shift out of this view is who benefits from you being burnt out and miserable? Who benefits, right? And the opposite question, who would benefit from your energized, loving, joyful self? Who would benefit? everyone, right? Not only would you benefit by enjoying your life, but everyone around you would, right? You might have those friends in your life who come in with energy and charisma and excitement and like, all right, let's go. What are we doing today? Blah, blah, blah. And you're like, okay, like you get wrapped up into it. Like, okay, maybe life is good. Maybe things are fun. Like we're having fun now. Oh my God, I'm having fun. Like I haven't had fun. Right. And it just feels so good because that energy um, benefits not only the person, but it benefits everyone. So who would benefit for your well-rested, well-taken-care-of, properly hydrated and, you know, nutrients and all of the things that you had time to explore your hobby and this and that? Who would benefit? Everyone. 
And so if you can understand that that's what self-love is, is fostering yourself to be the most joyous, excited, vibrant version of yourself that you can be, you will realize and appreciate what James just said, that it is a service to all of humanity. And it is what Allah wants for you, right? Our hadith of the prophet, we have the reports that I never saw anyone smile more than the prophet, right? That he was an optimist. When they had two options, he would take the easy way. That he wasn't just, okay, we're Muslim now, everyone, we got to dig a trench. And what, what did he do? He tried to make it light. Let's sing a song. Let's like make it fun, right? He was bringing the energy and vibrancy to life. And that is why people were attracted to him and wanted to be with him and couldn't, um, you know, didn't want to leave his house, always wanted to be into his presence because that's how you feel when you're with someone who is so excited and joyful and has a positive outlook and Allah is going to help us and this is going to work out. And oh my gosh, what are we going to do next? And you're like, okay, can I just stay and hang out with you? This is awesome. When you go by yourself, you're like, everything sucks. This is really hard. I don't know what to do. I'm depressed. And then you go and you commiserate with other people like that. Then you, we wonder why we're all depressed and gloomy. It's because we're, we're, we're denying ourselves and we literally are denying ourselves the things that would bring us to that state. If you know that reading would do it or cooking would do it for you or going on a walk or taking a hike or what, again, these don't have to be things that are expensive or time consuming. Or if you know, just like closing your door in your office and just like taking five minutes to just, you know, scream into your pillow or something, right? If you know that that would make you feel better, do it, do it and feel better. Um, one of our spiritual teachers says, you know, feeling good is feeling God. And truly as a Muslim community, we miss that. Feeling good is feeling God, because how can you feel good? The only way for you to really feel good, right, is for your spirit to come kind of into a place of contentment, you know, the rest of your body to just um, be relaxed and experiencing joy. And that a vibration of goodness can only come from Allah. Like that, where verily only in the remembrance of Allah do hearts find peace. Like that's where it comes from. People try to find it in all sorts of ways, in drugs and alcohol and entertainment and this and that. But when you look at them, you know that they're, they don't actually feel good. They're numbing it and they're suppressing it and they're trying to have like excitement or whatever, you know, a jolt of energy, but it's not true goodness. That real feeling of good, go hang out with children, go hang out with kids and they will teach you how to feel good. They're on their fitra and they will show you like, oh my God, the cardboard box, let's see, we're gonna make this now, we're gonna cut it up and they're just feeling good. They're connected, they're feeling inspired. Everything's exciting, is new, is interesting. And that um, is the place that we're all striving to get to. And I think it's very important to, I think we've made it a point to be grumpy as Muslims. Like it's a thing, it's a badge of honor. Who can be more grumpy? Like, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I'm sorry, I'm late to the mission, I'm in traffic. Man, I was in six hours in traffic, not only two hours, like we just <laughs> compete on like how bad we have it. And really to be successful is just to feel good and you could choose to feel good in this moment. And one thing again, to the listeners is this, for example, Zara mentioned something about, oh, my personal space. When a Muslim audience, especially older Muslims, hear that like, oh, that's a white person term. That's a Western term. Everything you need is in Islam. Islam has everything. Why are you telling me about personal space? Personal space is a white concept, right? Yes, Islam has everything. 
but it is us Muslims who buried it, and we don't know where it is anymore. We can't find it. Somebody buried it centuries ago, and they didn't leave us the map. And now it's on us to find those gems that make us live this world as travelers, as fulfilled travelers, so that we could return to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the right state of mind, right? And so just dismissing something because it's white and saying, no, Islam has all the answers. Islam has all the answers. It's the Muslims that don't, right? And then uh, number two is this idea, um, you know, of, of self-love, right? So, the other word for self-love, in my opinion, is excellence towards yourself, right? What is the recompense of excellence? And ihsan is a very broad term, but uh, of excellence except excellence. When you are excellent to yourself, the world is excellent to you. Like, a lot of people understand this ayah just meaning maybe it's about excellence towards Allah, but you being excellent towards yourself is being excellent toward Allah because you're in a, this is a rented a rented vehicle, right? Like, I am, this is a vessel that I've rented that I'm going to have to return to its rightful owner at some point in time. So me being excellent towards it can guarantee that I will have excellence in my life. Beauty in my life. Excellence, again, seems like it's like some sort of competitive thing. But that beauty, joy, love, self-fulfillment that we seek starts with being excellent towards ourselves, observing ihsan internally to ourselves. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Uh, my next question is a big one. What role do you guys think social media plays in some of the challenges that people have with self-identity? I mean, I think the, the big one, for, and, and this is no, you know, no mystery, I would say, um, the big one that I think social media amplifies is two things. I think is that sort of selective curation, right? So, uh, and in fact, I meet people who would say that. I will hear them say, oh, your Instagram grid is horrible. That's not curated. You're putting a selfie and no, no, Instagram grid should have a view and you're thinking and you're journaling. I don't know, whatever it is, whatever perception you're trying to uphold of this world. And what that reminds me of is actually what we're doing, what technology has caused us to do is basically create smaller, narrower and narrow microsomes of our own internal state. Right, That idea of having a curated Instagram grid and now with this metaverse and virtual reality where I could pretend and be whatever I want to be goes all the way back to the nafs and the ego, which builds the self-image about us. I want people to think James is the intellectual one. James is the bearded guy. James is the serious guy. James is these, like, and then I work really hard throughout my life to uphold that image, right? And that is not who I am truly but it's an image that I've constructed as a narrative. It's a character that I need to uphold. So to me, that social media has that curation and sort of that idea of upholding an image, and it's exhausting. It's exhausting in your own mind, and then it becomes even more exhausting when you have to do it also in this physical, digital world, I guess. But the main one is comparisons, right? Like just you comparing yourself to somebody else's feed and you wishing for what somebody else had. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Quran, do not wish for what was written for another man. Why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tell us that? Or even when Qarun, who had, you know, he was a celebrity of his time with all his riches, and people wished they had what Qarun was given, and people told him, why are you wishing for that? Then, of course, the, land, the, the earth swallows him, right? And so, I think that idea of comparing and wishing for what others have thinking that if again if only i got what they had i would be happy i would be successful 
just perpetuates that. You know, there's the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ where, you know, he says, if you say, what if you are opening, only if you are opening a door to the shaitan. In my opinion, that also means also, if only, you'd say it could the other way around, if only I had this. Oh, that's also a door for the shaitan to manipulate us and do things. And, and, and you know, uh, that's another common misunderstanding is about the shaitan. People think the shaitan is this magician who could like make things appear and disappear. Where no, all the shaitan does, he knows us very well. He knows how our ego works, right? And all he does, he points our attention to those insecurities in our ego. Shaitan can't go and like create, you know, if he knows that, oh, I'm attracted to women, create a woman and bring her to me, whatever. Like, no, like that's not how it works. Like the shaitan, all he does is like just whispers because he knows already where your nips is inclining to and tries to push you down that path. And so comparisons and wishing if only I had what she has and then my life will be dandy is, is probably one of the biggest threats, I think, of social media. Um, I don't know if I have anything. I might want to say like what, how there are, there can be benefits to social media and you have the opportunity to have more access to people who inspire you or to content that makes you feel good. And so if you can be mindful of that in your uh, social media consumption and not just use it as like the virtual water cooler where everyone's gathering around complaining and now you're doing that virtually too, gathered around complaining, um, to use it as like, you know what, at my job, it is a bunch of negative ne negativity and Debbie Downers and all of that stuff. But here online, I can connect with people who are inspiring, who are doing great work, who are moving in the direction that I want to move and curate that space for yourself. Um, so this, you know, includes, you know, just muting people, right? You may, you may not be able to unfollow some of like family and friends, but you could just mute them and say, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't see your post. Um, but if they're bringing you down, like keep it out of your life, right? We talk, uh, we hear so often about um, lower your gaze and guard your modesty and all of this. But part of lowering your gaze is not looking upon things that are going to bring you down. So if like seeing people's complaining and negativity is bringing you down, cut it out of your gaze, exit, remove it, right? If you know that you get triggered or you get comparison from this one person, don't follow them anymore. Um, but also explore why, you know, you have that, uh, uh, you get triggered because it'll just, the trigger will come in another form. You can't avoid it. Um, but you can f create through social media, you can use it in a beautiful way. And that's like how I've, um, come to more appreciate like my own, uh, Instagram account, practical Muslim, the community there of people who follow me are interested in self-development work, interested in Islamic spirituality, the discussions that we have, like the messages that we send in DM, like are, um, make me feel good if I feel good in that space and I have several other people that I follow online that I like I love to read their content I love to hear what they have to share and I send them messages and I you know I like their work and I tell them that I like it and so you have that opportunity as well again everything is but intention everything can either be a tool to 
to rise you up or to pull you down. If someone is approaching social media like, oh my God, it's the worst. It's just people being vain, taking random pictures. It's just a whole bunch of selfies. That's what they'll find and that's what they'll see and they'll make no use of it. And when they come on onto it, it'll give them nothing and they will, they will give nothing and they will get nothing. But if you're like, you know what? There's, I, you know, there's this person that I follow who lives in another country in another state and without this tool, I have, would have no reason to connect with them and engage with them. And now I can, it can be something totally different for that person. Like, wow, I've created this community. I only follow these people. And when I get onto my feed, like it gives me hope, it inspires me, it lights me up. So there's possibility there. And essentially this is the same with um, all aspects of life. We can either look at things as, um, as bad and harmful and the problems in it, or we can look for where is the beauty, the hope, the, the, the love within it. And you will find what you look for. And even, you know, in the Quran, right? Like the alcohol, right? The, the wine and the, the gambling are bad for you, but they may have benefits as well, right? Like anything can have a benefit the way you look at it. And the one, uh, one thing that I'll say about Muslims in general that I've seen is that people have used social media as a sort of like a virtual voyeurism where basically you're spying on other Muslims who are doing bad things. I want to see, oh, is that girl dating that guy? Oh, how dare she? How could she call herself a Muslim? She's dating. And you'll go and like you um, obsessively look for people's shortcomings on social media. Right to make somehow make ourselves feel better, and if you find yourself doing that, then definitely muting and unfollowing is definitely the cure because that is harming you more than them. You are drinking the poison, poison hoping they would die. Right, that's what's happening there. And, and so, please be vigilant about what you expose to your eyes and your ears um, and your heart ultimately uh, on social media. But indeed, it can be also a wonderful tool um, when used with the right intention and the right consciousness and being aware of these blocks and using it as a tool. Like Azara mentioned, if I am jealous of this brother because X, Y, Z, huh? Why is that? It's not about the, the person. It's about me. What is it saying about me? Why am I jealous about this guy who exercises all the time or is very fit or has beautiful children or whatnot? What is it saying about me? And digging deeper again, that's, that's really the, the tool that we have is our attention. Right, that's where we say pay attention, right? It is the greatest currency. So if I could turn that attention from the social media, from the screen, like this awareness that, oh, huh, I am feeling triggered about this. And I turn that attention inward, then it's a great tool. Yeah, and but, but probably across the board in general is everyone should reduce their social media time, <laughs> including myself. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for breaking that down. Uh, we're kind of coming to a final question now, and it's about a Muslim who might be struggling right now, uh, whether it's their self-esteem or confidence or even self-hate. What advice comes to mind that you can share right now? If for the person who is struggling, the first thing is like sending you a warm hug, sending you a lot of love and to know that you're seen your pain is valid. Um, that's that first piece because for many Muslims, we are quick to uh, be like, okay, these things are hard for me, but other people have it worse. So I'm just gonna try and be grateful. 
and that's kind of you know they call it talk about spiritual bypassing or whatever but that's really like not allowing yourself to feel what you feel or feeling guilty about what you feel or just trying to falsely make yourself feel better with this idea that okay but other people are suffering worse other people are dying and you know have their children's being killed and whatever horrible things you want to think about um so sending you that warm hug because you're allowed to have those feelings you're allowed to be like you know today just really sucked today wasn't as good as I thought it would be or or I'm really struggling through this difficult time with you know with I'm out of work or I have so little money or I'm in this bad relationship that you can um be sad I think sometimes uh within the Muslim community we also like want to quickly again jump back to happiness so oh we don't believe in depression like you just need to pray more and then you can't you're not supposed to be depressed you won't be depressed and it's like no you can be sad right the prophet had a year of sorrow when Hadija uh anha died and um his his uncle died right that it's described as the year of sorrow so you can imagine like and here is a man who understands death, understands life, knows Allah, has experienced all sorts of things and is grieving, is allowing himself this process to grieve. Like he couldn't even get remarried. He needed care for his young children and he couldn't get himself to do it because he was in this pain and in this grief. So you are allowed to be sad and to feel that feeling. We really don't appreciate how much acknowledging our feelings can support us that our feelings are just an indicator of something going on. And if you can allow it to be that indicator, like I'm feeling sad. And again, use it as a tool for introspection. Why did this hurt so much? What do I feel bad about? What am I afraid of? I'm afraid that I'm, you know, never going to get another job. I'll never be able to, you know, prove to my parents that this and that, or I'll never um, have the type of relationship that I want. Identifying those things. Because again, the more specific you can be, the more you can understand yourself and and why you think and believe and feel the way you do, then you'll be able to go to the place of healing. But until you know what it is, you can't heal it, right? It's just like a doctor giving a diagnosis. I don't know what's causing you pain, right? You're just like, I'm hurting all over. What? Like, what is, where exactly? Otherwise I cannot treat you. The same thing, like I'm feeling this sadness, but I want to push it away without diving deep. Where exactly? What is this sadness pointing to for you? And allowing yourself to cry it out or, you know, scream it out or whatever it is um, and let people know that, hey, I'm struggling. I'm struggling right now or this is not easy for me or I know, you know, I do have, you know, X, Y and Z to be grateful for. But this thing really did hurt. It really hurt me and I'm in pain about it. Telling others um, because that that uh, process is right. The, as they say, right, the only way through it is through it. It was like, you just have to go through it. So for a Muslim who's struggling not to bypass in any of these ways that other people have it worse, or I'm just going to be grateful for these other things that I have, or I'm just going to dive myself into another area of my life that's working and ignore this part that's not working, it will stay there and it will fester. Um, and you can reach out for support, right? You can reach out to us as coaches. There's so many now more Muslim therapists online. Reach out to your friends, reach out to your family, and really believe that you will get support, that people will support you. 
many times to um Muslims tend to try and turn only to Allah. I'm only telling Allah about my problems. I'm only just praying at night. I'm making tahajjud. And you're not telling anyone else what you're struggling with. But so much of Allah's support comes through other people. It comes through people. So if you think that you can just by yourself, just, okay, I will get through this. Just me only telling Allah. I don't want people to know I'm embarrassed or I'm shy or I don't want to burden others. You will make, you will prolong your pain. Find who you can speak to and speak to them. I mean, it's a, Zada's a tough act to follow. So, uh, yes. <laughs> the one thing that I would say is that the pain is real, right? And the suffering is real. But the answer is you. I know sometimes we pray, we think, you know, there's going to be a miracle that will come. You are the miracle. You are the, your own answer to your own prayers. And so as much as right now it may seem difficult and it may seem like it does not make sense, like you don't need that advice right now. But when the time is right and you're ready to come out of this funk, know that you are the answer. Allah will not put the answer behind the paywall or behind some random obstacle, because that will not be fair. What if you were born poor? What if you are born deaf? What if you are born blind? What, what, is, what it may be, if it's behind some sort of artificial obstacle, then that will not be fair. And Allah is fair. All of us have the tools to succeed. Because it is introspection. It is contemplation. It is reflection. All of these are mentioned so many times in the Qur'an, more than prayer, for a reason. Right? And that's why... Being aware that you are the obstacle and you are the solution at the same time can be scary, but ultimately when you decide that it's time to change, you'll feel empowering. Amazing. Jazakallah khair. Thank you so much. Uh, honestly, it's been riveting and eye-opening and just amazing to speak with you both. I really appreciate your time. Any sort of final words or anything that you'd like to share before we finish? I mean, thank you so much for having us. Uh, we are enrolling uh, students to our Limitless Love program uh, for this cohort. We have it every three months or so, but there's a cohort coming up soon, inshallah. And uh, people who want to stay in touch with me, I'm on Instagram or on LinkedIn. Actually, I share a lot of uh, God-conscious uh, success advice on LinkedIn, which is an area where sort of God tends to be sort of stripped away from the conversations. So if you're active on that platform, you could, James Fagmus, you could look me up um, and uh, follow me there. And um, you can reach out to me on Instagram at Practical Muslim. Or you can email me, Zahra at Practical Muslim. Um, yes, you know, any questions, any support, if you are interested in our coaching program, um, of course, reach out. Our comprehensive coaching program is called Limitless Love, but we also offer um, mini courses and we have um, individual sessions that we'll be doing all throughout 2022. So reach out to us. We're happy to support you. Basically, just know that you can achieve your dreams and the only thing standing in your way um, is your belief if it's possible. And if you need help believing that it is possible, that's what we do. Fantastic. Take care. Assalamu alaikum. 
Wa alaikum salam. Jazakallah for joining me, Sivan, your host on the Mindful Muslim podcast. Really hope you benefited from this episode with Sahara and James. And I look forward to seeing you on the next one. Make sure you also like, subscribe and share. Jazakallah khair.